Well, good evening. It's good to be with you again. I'm sorry the rest of my family couldn't make it out. We've got some little ones who aren't feeling well. We didn't want to spread that around. So uh, you can make your way in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. uh, This evening we're going to be looking at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Matthew chapter 20. So I'm going to go ahead and read that parable and then we'll uh, pray and ask for the Lord's help this evening. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this evening. We ask that you would give us grace, Lord God, to understand your word. Lord, there are often parables uh, like this one that cause us to scratch our head and uh, wonder what in the world Jesus meant by them. And we pray you would give us understanding, Lord. Open our eyes to see uh, your great grace towards us. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to see how your kingdom turns everything upon its head and makes the first to be last and the last to be first. And we pray, Lord, that this would lead us to see our need for the grace of Christ and to cling to him and to change the way we see ourselves as we stand before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So as I've mentioned, I think every time uh, I've come to talk about parables, there's two important things you want to look for when uh, 
interpreting a parable. Number one, you want to ask yourself, what is the point of the parable, right? You don't want to get bogged down by the details of every parable and try to, it's, a parable is not the same as an analogy, right? Analogies have, this represents this, this represents this. Parables are not the same as analogies. So you want to look for the, what's the simple point? And the second thing is you want to pay attention to the context, right? What is it, what happened in the Gospels that prompts Jesus to tell uh, this parable? Because that's part of interpreting, that's part of understanding the point and the meaning of a parable. But sometimes it's hard to figure out, especially when you're trying to preach on a parable, well, where do I start? Do I start with narrowing down the point or do I start with context? And this was one of the hard ones to, okay, where, where should I begin? But I finally landed on saying, let's first look at the context of the parable. Let's step back and see what took place before Jesus told this parable. So we're going to step back to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to see that there were three interactions. We're going to start in verse 13, Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. But there are three interactions with Jesus and people, a couple groups of people and one person in particular, that leads up to the telling of this parable. And I think it will help us to understand the parable and its point by looking at these three encounters. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, we first have Jesus um, being brought children that he may lay his hands on them and pray for them. So verse 13, then children were brought to him, that is to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So these, these parents, I'm assuming, are bringing their children to Jesus. They want Jesus to you know, lay his hands upon them and pray for them and bless them. And the disciples think that this is below Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't have time for, you know, sitting down to read children's stories and, you know, spending time with the children. We have more important things to do. And Jesus tells his disciples, no, don't send them away. Bring them here. Let them come to me. And this is an important phrase. For to such, as these little children belongs the kingdom of heaven. Remember that phrase. It's going to come up again. To such belong the kingdom of heaven. And then we come to the second encounter, and that is uh, the rich young man, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And we're told in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 18, that this man was a ruler, So we know he was rich, we know he was a ruler, perhaps someone like Nicodemus, but younger, a younger Nicodemus. And he comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so Jesus points this man to the commandments, right? Obey the commandments. 
And he says, I have. Or which ones? And then he lists the commandments. And he says, all these, uh, verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And so Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And we see the man's disappointed response. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? So in this interaction, we have Jesus saying, it's impossible for a rich man to enter. That's the point of the camel through the eye of a needle. There's not a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle. It's a, he's, he's using a hyperbole here. It, it is impossible. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we see a stark contrast between these two groups, right? Here are these humble children coming to Jesus. To them belong the kingdom of heaven. Then we have this rich young man coming. What must I do to enter heaven? And he says, it's impossible for you to do it. To one, he says, the kingdom is open to you. To the other one, he says, the door is shut. So, that gives us a clue here. What this parable is going to talk about. And then... Jesus has a conversation with his disciples, and we're going to go into this part more near the end of the message. But uh, just in summary here, Peter, when seeing what happens, Peter says, well, look, Jesus, we, we have left everything to follow you. We've done what that guy didn't do. We did. So what, what is there for us? What will there be for us? And Jesus Tells him, yes, there will be a reward for you. You will join me in the kingdom. You will inherit in eternal life. You will sit upon thrones in my kingdom. But then he ends the conversation with, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So here's those three situations that really lead up to. So right after saying that, right after at the end of this conversation, Jesus says, now let me tell you a parable to illustrate that. So, so now let's walk through the parable, right? The king, as, as many of the parables in Matthew's gospel begin, same thing. The kingdom of heaven is like. So he's drawing a comparison here. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So now this begins with, again, a, a scene that would have been very common to Jesus' time. The disciples understood this, right? We have a, a landowner who has vineyards. Just, you know, we, we're going through the same time, you know, this time of year is harvest time. You've got farmers out there. They've got fields and fields and fields of corn and soybeans, and it's time to get it in. We've got to get it in now, right? And we need all the hands on deck. Find everybody you can who can drive a tractor. Let's get this stuff in the barn before it goes bad. So same thing. 
We're, here's this man, he has a vineyard, must be time for the grape harvest. We need workers. So go out, go out to the, the marketplace, find where these men are standing looking for work, and let's, let's hire them to get this in. So he goes out early in the morning, first thing in the morning, finds these group of men waiting, ready to be hired, and he, he makes an agreement with them. Right, Come work in my vineyard for the day, and I will pay you a denarius. Right, A denarius a day. So a denarius was what most commentaries say. It was a, it was a decent wage for the day. So maybe in today's terms we might say with inflation, 200 bucks a day, you know. Come work for me 12 hours, 200 bucks. Sounds fair. They shook on it. So he sent them into his vineyard, verse 3. And going out about the third hour, the, the landowner goes out again to the marketplace, sees others standing there, says to them, you also go into my vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you, right? You're not working a full 12-hour day, but I'll pay you something. So they went, verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same, right? Every few hours, he's, hey, we, we got we to gotta get this crop in. We need more hands. We need more workers. Let's get them. Uh, verse 6. And about the 11th hour, so now we've come to almost the end of the day, right? We, if, it's, if we're counting 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. as a 12-hour day, here it's 5 o'clock. It's 5 o'clock, one hour left. He went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. So he said to them, You go into the vineyard Two. Now I don't want to, you know, I don't want to break my own rule here and read too far into a parable, but you know, here's guys. Why have they been not hired? I mean, they, they speculating again. Maybe they're older. Maybe they're younger. They're the guys that I don't want to hire this person. I mean, I want to hire. Uh, the young, strong guy who knows what he's doing. I'm going to get as much as I can out of this worker. But then we got these leftover guys, right? Maybe they're a little too decrepit, maybe too slow, don't know what they're doing. Nobody wants to hire them. I don't know. But the landowner says, you know what? Just go. Just You'll do something, right? We'll get some work out of you. So go. So verse 8. Then evening came, right? The whistle blows. Boop. End of the day. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, right? That was according to the law. You, you paid a worker at the end of the day. Every, day. every day was Friday. You got paid. But he says, beginning with the last, right? Line them up. The last who started just an hour ago down to the ones who were hired at the beginning. And when those who were hired about the 11th hour worked one hour. They barely broke a sweat. Each of them received a denarius, a whole day's wage for one hour of work. I mean, I just barely got here, put my stuff in the locker, went and grabbed a few grapes, whistle blows. Oh, we're done. 200 bucks. Cha-ching. Man, this is amazing. 
And so he, he pays all of them, right? A denarius. Everybody's happy except for those who were hired first, right? Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. What? <laughs> and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last workers worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. All right? That's not fair. Right? I mean, and that's most of, most of the time, that's our problem with this parable, isn't it? We read this, we scratch our head, and we say, that just doesn't, that's not fair. I mean, I wouldn't want to be the guys hired at the beginning of the day who worked 12 hours, and this, the guy next to you who's worked only one hour gets the same pay as you. All right, but, but that's the point. That's the punchline. As we talked about, sometimes in these parables, there's these, Jesus has a way of, you know, there's a, a quick turn to the parable. There's a, there's a punchline. There's a, uh, I think last time I called it a hook, you know. You swallow it and then psh, you get the hook. Well, here's the hook. They all got the same. And so then the, the um, landowner replies, right? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to you? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then Jesus summarizes the parable. So the last will be first and the first last. So we see I got a clue to the point of the parable is that the parable is book-ended, right? At the beginning of the parable and at the end of the parable, we have the same phrase, but turned around, right? So, Matthew 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's what prompts Jesus to say the parable. And then at the end of the parable, we have the same saying, but of course he turns it around. So the last will be first, and the first last. So that, that's the point, right? The point. And so it's important that we understand Jesus' intended point with this parable, and that we don't stretch it beyond its intent. Okay, so number one, Jesus is not teaching employers how they ought to pay their employees. Right? If you implement this pay strategy at your business you will promote laziness, right? Man, I can come in at the last hour of the day, work one hour, and get paid a full day's wage. That's not what Jesus is, is advocating here. He's not advocating, nor is he advocating some kind of communistic form of government, right? Uh, this is actually, this parable was used by people who tried to advocate for communism. Jesus is not teaching communism. He's not saying Work however you want, and let, everyone should just get the same thing, the same wage, we should all be the same. He's not saying that. But Jesus intends to illustrate with this parable 
that in the kingdom of heaven, many things are going to be flip-flopped. In the kingdom of heaven, many things are going to be turned upside down as we might think it, it, it should be. It's not going to be in the kingdom of heaven the way that it is in this world. The kingdom of heaven, as we saw in chapter 19, is open, belonging to the children, right? The lowly, the least. Which the disciples were ready to push away, right? We don't have time for you, little insignificant people. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Well, actually, the kingdom of God belongs to those people. But then we turn around and we've got the kingdom of heaven is firmly shut in the face of a rich young man who seeks to enter it by his own work. Someone who seems to be important. I mean, Jesus, if we could get this guy, he's rich, okay? He's influential, if we can get this guy on our team, that would give us, you know, a step up, right? He's got a platform. We need a platform, Jesus. Get him on our team. No, the door's shut. You can't get into my kingdom by works. You can't get into my kingdom by earthly influence or riches. You want to get into my kingdom? You must change and become like little children. You must humble yourself. You must become meek and lowly. Jesus illustrates this flip-flop in another parable that's found in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm not going to read the entire parable, but I'll read the beginning. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The first, greatest. He was a great man. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Least, low, don't want to be that guy. Well, now we come, turn it around. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. The first became last. The last became first. This is what Jesus is illustrating with this parable. This is, what's, this is what is going to happen. When the kingdom of God comes in power, when the day of judgment comes and Christ renews all things, some that we thought were first, great, powerful, admired by this world, in the world to come, they will be counted as the least. They will be seen as insignificant, 
pitiful, wretched creatures. I mean, think about that. Think about that. People that we you know, think of today, people who are influential, rich, powerful, that everyone envies. I wish I could be like that guy, right? The head of the company who says, do this, and everyone does it. The, the, the man who's so powerful, no one would question their opinion. People who seem so great, but then we step into eternity. Then we come to the, the day of judgment. And those same people will be seen as nothing if they don't know Christ. If they don't have Christ, they will be pitiable. You would say, I never, never, ever want to trade places with them. But then, on the other hand, there are many who seem now to be the least in this world. Pitiable, despised by the world. But in the world to come. Fast forward to that day of judgment if they are in Christ. And they will be creatures of such glory, exalted to share in the kingdom of Christ, that everyone would envy them. When the kingdom comes, it's going to flip-flop. It's going to turn many things on its head. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to see that and understand that now. Because you're despising those who will enter the kingdom and you're pandering to those who will not. So, this parable begs this question. My friend, what will your condition be when this world is done? When Jesus Christ returns to judge all people and He makes a new world the home of righteousness, what will your condition be? doesn't matter what your condition is right now. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think are the most pressing issues and concerns you have in this world. This world is passing away. It doesn't matter if you have all the goods of this world, if you have prestige in this world. It doesn't matter. What will your condition be when this world melts away, when Christ breaks open the sky and He sits to judge when He turns this world, when the kingdoms of this world are made into the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, what will your condition be? That is the most important issue in the world. So, Jesus' point with this parable is, is simple. Don't, don't, let's not complicate it. Let's not try to make it say what it doesn't say. The kingdom is going to turn this world upside down. The greatest and the le and the, the greatest, the, the most important will become the least. With those who are lowly, those who belong to Christ, although they might be lowly, although they might be despised, although they might be poor and sick, they will become the greatest. They will be exalted. But secondly, in this parable, Jesus shows us 
the basis for this radical new reckoning in God's kingdom, the basis for this turning things upside down, and it is not human merits or works, but it is the unmerited grace and mercy of God. Right? On payday, the landowner did not pay according to hours worked. He did not pay according to pounds of grapes that were harvested. He paid based on his own generosity and goodness. He gave those less deserving what they could not earn. By this, Jesus teaches us that the economy of God's kingdom is based on grace, not upon human merits. God deals with all people on the basis of his sovereign and selective grace, not upon human merits or works. Let's look at a couple of scriptures in uh, Romans. Romans, let's start in chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If salvation were based on our works, on our merits, then God would be indebted to us. Do you see that? That's why the rich young ruler's question was all wrong. What must I do to enter eternal life? You can't. If if salvation is based upon us, us doing, us earning, then God becomes the debtor. And grace is not grace then salvation would not glorify God and His mercy. It would glorify us. It would glorify our works. It would glorify our own self-righteousness. Salvation then would not be of grace or of God, but of man. Now turn over to Romans chapter 11. Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God has ordained that all people be bound over to sin so that salvation may be based on the free mercy of God and not upon man's merits. We must come to God humble, guilty, and broken, or we do not come to Him at all. So again, we see why the rich young man had it all wrong. What must I do? 
to inherit eternal life. Come on, Jesus, tell me. Give me a list. What must I do? He's assuming that he may earn his salvation. He's assuming that he can fulfill the law of God perfectly. When the scriptures taught him, he could not. He cannot. So we cannot come to God on this basis of of earning, of this basis of I will do these things and you owe me heaven. No, salvation is by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. So let's go to one more passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, you can probably guess to where I'm going. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a gracious gift of God, coming through faith in Jesus Christ, not based upon human works or merits. That's what Jesus is trying to illustrate by this. That's what he's illustrating by this this group of people who comes in for, for one hour, but yet they are given a full reward. They're paid not on the basis of their works, not on their productivity, not on their benefit toward God. They are paid graciously they are paid mercifully right the landowner's like i know you don't deserve this denarius you don't deserve a full day's wage you barely got here you haven't done anything for me but here i give it to you here here freely graciously here it is a full day's wage salvation is the gracious gift of God. We must come to God as unworthy. We must come to God as guilty. We must change and become like little children. Right Again, focus on the point that Jesus means by that analogy. Right There are many things about children we shouldn't be like. Right? He's not saying become childish. He's saying... He's focusing on the humility. Humble yourself. Become the least. Those people that you kick aside that you don't think are worthy to even come into my presence, humble yourself and know that you're one of them. You and I are one of them. Unworthy to come in to God's kingdom. But yet, unworthy as we are, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, being dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan in his rebellion against God, living, carrying out the passions of our flesh, just following whatever our sinful nature tells us to do, being children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, in spite of that, God being 
rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. God sent Christ to be our representative, to be our Savior. God sent Christ to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill. He sent Christ to obey on our behalf and to suffer on our behalf. He sent Christ to represent us, to stand in the place of guilty sinners, to take our sin upon Himself and to suffer the wrath of God, the curse of God that we deserve for our sin. He died condemned in our place. And then He rose from the dead. He rose up victorious over death becoming the firstborn from among the dead. He ascended to heaven, and He sits at the right hand of the Father, where He continually intercedes for His people. That is the basis of our salvation. Not our own works, not our own merits. But in order to receive that We cannot come to God as the rich young man did. We cannot come with, what must I do? We have to come to what would have been better is, I cannot do. And that's what Jesus was trying to get at when he shoved the law in this young man's face. He wasn't trying to say, yeah, you can keep all these commandments, and if you do that, you'll go to heaven. He was saying, you cannot You cannot keep these commandments. You've broken them all, but yet you're blind to it. And as long as you're blind to your sin, as long as you think you're a good person, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The door will be slammed in your face. But if you humble yourself, you realize your sin, hate your sin, come crawling to the door, And saying, Lord, I don't deserve to even come into your kingdom. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Then suddenly the door is open. Come in. So you also must know that you're a sinner. You must know that there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you have done. There's nothing you can do to enter into this kingdom. You must repent and put your faith in Christ and reach out for the mercy of God as a humble child. So Jesus shows us this by the parable. The economy of God's kingdom is grace and mercy, not your works. But I think also, lastly, that this parable also offers a warning to Christians, to believers. Uh, Let me turn back over there, make our way back over to Matthew. Uh, We'll go back to Matthew 19 and come back to this conversation that Jesus and Peter are having. So Jesus states after the rich young man walks away, 
Does not heed Jesus' call to leave all things and follow him? Peter says, wait a minute, now we've done that. We've done that. What will, what will there be for us? All right, verse 27, Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So I think this parable has a warning. Peter is teetering on the edge of a destructive error. Peter has rightly responded to the call of Christ in faith. He has obeyed. He has truly left all. He's truly following Christ. And he has a sure promise of hope for, the, for future glory. That's not wrong. It's not wrong. Jesus didn't say to Peter, Peter, don't ask me that. I'm not going to tell you. He answered him. There, yes. There is a reward for following Christ. There is a reward for sacrifice and service. This is not wrong. We're called to sacrifice and to serve our Lord with hope of future glory and eternal reward. But the danger lies lurking in the remaining sin of the heart of every believer, which is we're, we're ever ready to move from the posture of a humble, unworthy servant to the position of a disgruntled worker. Even Christians, and especially ministers of the gospel, can easily fall into the trap of, this, of these first-hour workers. When after years of faithful service, after great costly sacrifice for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the service of the gospel... Sometimes if we don't experience the benefits of God's service as we think that we should. But then we look over. Here's brother so-and-so. Just got saved last week. Or just started in the ministry a month ago. God blesses them in the way that we've been praying for for a hundred years. We can start to begrudge God's generosity. We can start to be resentful towards fellow believers. And this kind of attitude kills our Christian joy. Makes God's service a drudgery. All because there is a subtle shift in the attitude of our heart. We slowly, perhaps imperceptibly, drift from seeing ourselves as unworthy servants, living upon and basking in the grace of God, we shift over to, we're one who deserves. We've merited something from God. God, haven't you seen the sacrifice? Right? Left father and mother, left home, did this. 
gave up a good paying job so I could serve you in this way. Don't you see that? We no longer see ourselves as debtors, but we see God as owing us something. We deserve better treatment. God, we deserve better. This error is, as I said, joy-killing. We be, if we get that attitude towards God, towards serving the Lord, towards living for the Lord, it kills joy. It's service-destroying. Well, God, if you're not going to do that for me, then I'm not serving you anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. And thirdly, it is unity obliterating in a church. Right? If we come to God with this attitude, don't you see what I'm doing more than that person is doing? Why do you give this person that? Why do you give them this blessing or that thing and not me? It kills unity. Then we start, just like the disciples did, we start arguing. Who's the greatest? Who's doing more? No. We're unworthy servants. So lastly, let's, let's look at, go back to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. In verse 7, again, Jesus telling another parable about servants here. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We're servants. And not, not just servants, but unworthy servants. We have to maintain that attitude, even as believers, even as serving in ministry of one capacity or the other, we have to maintain that attitude, no matter how long our Christian life, no matter how fruitful or faithful our service to God has been, no matter how deep our sacrifice to Christ and His service has been, we are, have always been, and always will be debtors to His mercy. That's, I think that's the point of this parable. We are debtors to His mercy. Every one of us, every Christian, no matter how long we've believed or how short we've believed, no matter how much we've served the Lord or how little we've served the Lord, no matter how much we've sacrificed or how little we've sacrificed, we are debtors to His mercy, unworthy servants. And may God help us to maintain that heart and that attitude. Let's pray. Lord God, you are rich in mercy. And we are unworthy, Lord, but often pride and sin blind our eyes, to ourselves especially. We think we're great. We think we've done so much service. We think you owe us something when you don't. 
If we were to demand our rights, demand what we are owed, it would only be wrath. Everything is of your mercy. Our salvation, our present life, our circumstances, our future, our entering the kingdom of God, it is all of your mercy, O Lord. Help us to see these things and give us, O God, eternal eyes, eternal perspective that we would not be overawed by the great and the powerful and the strong of this world who will come to nothing when Christ breaks open that sky. But let us, Lord, walk humbly before you, O God, to love justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly before you. Help us, God, that we might magnify the grace of Christ in our life, in our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.